Welcome to the Sum of It All Street Data Podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. This season, we're exploring the book Street Data, a next generation model for equity, pedagogy, and school transformation by Shane Safir and Jamila Dugan. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we are chatting about chapter seven, Make Learning Public, Valuing Teacher Voices. So this week, Mark, I was working with a group of administrators and we visited a class for an observation. Mm-hmm. And afterwards, we had this conversation around having a curious stance. Uh, and we recognized as outsiders that visiting the classroom, it was super easier easy to be curious because we don't know what happened in the minutes before we walked in. We don't know what happened in yesterday's class or even two weeks ago. But when we debriefed it, we we were talking about how it feels to have a curious stance as a teacher. And we just mm. felt like it's a lot harder to be curious as a teacher. Um, and one of the things that we kind of felt like was a reason why is that our assumptions kind of get in the way as a teacher, that our assumption is that our experience in the classroom is the same as the experience my students are having in the classroom because we're in the same room at the same time, right? And I felt like this just really fit in to what we read in this chapter this week. Wow, Audrey, what a great way to start our conversation today. That That is so interesting. And it makes me think of something that I said recently around the same uh, topic, which is, are we listening to understand a learner, whether they be an adult or a student? Are we listening to understand or are we listening to put them back on the right track? And what we really mean is putting back on our track, right? Yeah, I think that's just a really critical piece around this work is, is the kind of the control piece, unlocking some of the spaces around like, why is it that we're trying to learn here? Um, how do we have that curious stance? So I'm excited to dive into this work. Yeah, yeah, so, so, so great to frame this all with curiosity, Audrey. Uh, and, you know, as we dive into the chapter, chapter seven, the authors mention uh, this idea of a focal student approach. And, you know, that's a practice that allows teachers to see individual learners and their individual approaches to learning, where you select certain students and you really spend time to really get to understand um, how they learn. Um, and I have to say, Audrey, this this does bring me back to experience that I had with something similar to this when I was a teacher. And uh, at the time, they were calling uh, this focus students. And I have to say, Audrey, it had a really deficit view to it. It was where we selected certain students. There was a lot of compliance around it. And in this chapter, we have lots of uh, things that the authors are talking to us about compliance. And and it was really something that we did because we were supposed to. And I, I think back on it, and there was just a lot of deficit um, uh, thinking and beliefs that were actually, I think, reinforced. Um, mm-hmm. So it was really not a very successful approach. Um, more recently, um, a colleague and I are engaged in some work around uh, MTSS, which is a uh, some an approach that we have here in, in California and other places around the country. And we're involved in this collaborative where we're asking teachers to interview students that they're curious about. So back to that word curiosity, sort mm-hmm. of not looking at it as a deficit view, but as you look at your learners, who are you curious about? Um, and you know, employing empathy interviews and other things to think about how they're learning. Um, that type of approach that we're attempting to use uh, in shifting that old focus student language, Audrey, is something that 
I'm pretty excited about and and I think it connects to here when they're talking about focal that focal approach. Yeah. So it's good to bring up a couple of these things that are just kind of thrown in the chapter that kind of lend themselves back to the curiosity. And I appreciate you pointing that out. You know, one other thing before we dive into our questions that really struck me was this idea of a design principle of symmetry. And I never heard this phrase before. So Mm. of course they cite a book. I have to go grab it. It's on my (laughs) shelf somewhere. Of course, you know, read up on that section. Um, But this This is a premise, and I think it's important to kind of setting the stage for this chapter. It's a premise of so much of the work that you and I do Mm -hmm. regularly, is that when we are designing learning experiences, professional learning experiences for educators, Mm -hmm. we do that often with UDL in mind, um, Universal Design for Learning, and thinking about like if it's good for how we design for our most marginalized learners in the classroom, it's good for the same and true as adults, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But this idea of symmetry is about what we create that's good learning for students, there's a symmetry to it to how we create good learning experiences for the grownups. Um, and so I'm super excited to dive into that and with that premise in mind as we think about making uh, learning public for, for our teachers. Oh, yeah. Uh, great, Audrey. And, and I think maybe what might help our listeners is uh, I'm going to I'm going to share one of the quotes from page 149, and I think it really frames the whole discussion that we're about to have. Um, and it says, "The purpose of this chapter is to explain how the practice of public learning builds adaptive ex- expertise and facilitates a pedagogy of voice for educators, so that they in turn can enact this shift for their students." Yeah, I appreciate it. right there. That's the design symmetry design, right? Like they can, if we facilitate it for them, then they can enact that shift for the students. So let's dive in. Um, one of the questions at the end of the chapter, question two says, when you reflect on your professional learning opportunities, to what extent do they go beyond these routine expertise to build adaptive expertise? So there's mm-hmm. like this explanation in the in the chapter about the difference between the two. If you had if you missed it or skimmed it too fast, I really highly recommend going back to it because when I consider most, if not all, professional learning in math, it's routine. Mm. It's about building routine expertise. It's about yeah. fidelity to the textbook. It's about following a pacing guide. It's about teaching it the same way as the next teacher. A ton of the PD for teachers in math seems centered on building routine expertise instead of adaptive expertise. Yeah, I, this is so true, Audrey. You know, as I'm thinking back as an elementary teacher, I'm thinking about like even my whole value as a mathematics teacher was often implicitly or express, explicitly stated as if, oh, am I on the right day of the pacing? And are my district benchmark scores good? And are my standardized test scores good? Um, and I, I'm not saying that those things don't have any value, um, but they really overwhelmed any other sense of other parts of my students as learners and doers of mathematics, right? And as we've been talking about this season, the, if the end goal influences so much of the day-to-day decisions you make as you teach mathematics, it's really important for us to think about what do we want that end goal to be and how can that wag the day-to-day decisions we make in it? it really could be transformative if we really consider what goal we really want to have. Right. Yes. So if we want to shift away from these routine experiences, um, routine building, routine expertise, excuse me, and instead want to build adaptive expertise, we got to be doing things differently, right? Uh, 
uh, for sure. And, you know, one thing that I think helped me as I was reading this chapter, and maybe it help our listeners as well to remind them, or if you haven't read the chapter yet, is in the early part of the chapter, there's a vignette that that helped me think about how we might shift our thinking about centering the learning of our educators to counter that singular focus, uh, among other things that I just uh, mentioned. Um, in the book, uh, the authors provide a vignette describing this very thoughtful, well-meaning teacher as she's engaging in this public learning. And she's realizing that unconsciously, she was doing more of the talking with students she considered less skilled in writing. This is in a, a writing instruction. Versus the freedom and space she gave the students she perceived as skilled writers to find their voice and articulate their ideas. And I just thought this reflection was so powerful and had me thinking about how it could look if we used artifacts like video to collectively examine our practices as educators in mathematics. So we could bump into the things that we may be doing unconsciously to hold our students back in mathematics. And I just, Audrey, it was so interesting how that was something that was done publicly with a group of teachers together and teachers were asking that particular person reflecting different questions that that encourage them to reflect. And I just, I, I think we have some similar models of, of reflection in mathematics, but I'm not sure we have one that's quite like the one that was described in this chapter. So um, I think that's pretty interesting, right? It's super interesting. And, you know, I'm, I'm really with you on this idea that collecting artifacts is one of the essential ingredients to this, right? That in doing that and collecting the video and collecting the audio recordings and thinking about our interactions with students, that it helps us examine our practice more closely. And that's absolutely essential if we want to get better. And so I think the second part to that is that curiosity stance, right? Is that I have to be authentically curious about how the students are experiencing the lesson mm. and the learning um, and not just making an assumption that they're experiencing it the way that I felt it. Um, so like this to me feels like the, like that is very different than step it's, it's, it's stepping out of this building routine expertise. And it feels like instead it's really deep equity work. Like it's about thinking deeply about our practices and centering that in equity. Yeah. Like getting out of my own way. And like, it's, it's about, uh, not, are they on my track? It's about what what are they thinking? I, I just love how you you put that, Audrey. And um, you know, in in this chapter, the author, authors make the point that, you know, I think you mentioned this earlier, we teach educators through a pedagogy of compliance. And um I just the the important point here is that we've got to make the case of shifting from this culture of compliance to a culture of public learning. Yeah. We absolutely have to. So that brings up another question at the end of the chapter. Question three said, what spaces could you imagine introducing and using public learning? What would it take to get it started? Do you have some thoughts already around that? Yeah, the, the authors mentioned asking teachers to share a student learning dilemma. Uh, and immediately, Audrey, that triggered that uh, we've been doing some work with some administrators um, in supporting them with uh, supporting their teachers in teaching and learning mathematics. And we've asked our administrators to bring dilemmas in their practice. And we've used a protocol that has really been helpful because it delays the tendency to rush for other people to solve that person's dilemma. Because you know how it goes when somebody mm -hmm. shares something they're 
struggling with is as well-meaning educators, we want to jump in and say, hey, you know what? Why don't you just do this? But this protocol is so great because it actually slows things down and allows that person that's doing the reflecting to allow other questions to be asked so that they can really examine their dilemma more deeply and get to those underlying issues. Um, and it really reminded me a lot of what the uh, examples in this chapter around public learning look and sound like. Yeah, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of similarity there. You know, we've been using these dilemma protocols probably a lot a lot more often for sure in the last six months than ever before. Sure. And I have noticed with groups that we've used it consistently that it's changed the way the group talks to each other. So, you know, sometimes we still are really formal about the protocol and we, you know, we remind ourselves of what the protocol is and we kind of step ourselves through the steps. But lots of times the protocol is just the natural way they engage in conversation. Like they stop themselves from going to a solution and they ask the probing question. They say, I just want to clarify first. And they clarify. And then they ask that probing question that has the person who brought the dilemma sits back and is able to say like, hmm, hadn't thought of that. Or I've already thought of that. What's, you know, kind of moving to the next one. And they more fluidly move in and out of that. And I appreciate that the authors say in the chapter, they say, the magic is not in any protocol or plan that we hand out. Rather, the magic is in the mindset of the people who are sitting down to engage in the protocol. And that's shifted with our groups. They are now in it together to learn to get better at this, right? Their intent when they sit down to have these conversations is to support each other in learning, which is vastly different than supporting each other in problem solving, right? Like it's it's a different stance. It's like, I want to value that, that together we have expertise, but that you're able to figure out this stuff and that I can hold up a mirror for you in doing that work. And so I really feel like it changes the mindset and the practice of what we're, our role is as educators when we're doing learning ourselves. Yeah. And, and doesn't it really just change that power differential that we keep going back to, right? Mm -hmm. um, because if, if I'm in this power role in leading our adult learners in mathematics, um, and I'm sort of the, the person that needs to solve everybody's problems, um, that's the same shift that we need to make that, are, that we're encouraging our teachers to make in the classrooms as they shift that power to their learners. Um, and so that the, so that students could be develop agency as doers of mathematics. Yeah, my synopses are firing on this one. I, there's a lot of other places I'm thinking we should try some stuff like this on. And I'm even wondering how we take it on and say, how do I use this myself as a in the learner seat, as opposed to providing the learning experience for someone else? I do have one more question. I'm going to try to fit us in for today. We're going oh, for cool. three, Mark. Um, All right, let's do it. In all of this work that we're talking about, because I think this relates highly to this space my brain is in right now, is I want to set this up and I want to do this. But question five says, what might get in the way of starting the practice of public learning and why? Because I'm already, you know, every time I say, hey, let's do this with our department, yeah. I'm like, yeah, yeah. but and yeah. this won't work or that won't work. And the idea of a safe space immediately comes to mind because learning feels high stakes for adults when it's attached to your source of income right? Like for kids, maybe, I don't know if tests really feel high stakes to kids, but mm. <laughs> the learning feels, it feels very vulnerable, very vulnerable in an unsafe way when it's attached to your job and your job is the source of income for your family. So yeah, I'm stuck there. educators went to this, you know, profession to change lives. So yeah, I think it's good to consider all of that. And 
you know, Audrey, there, there's a quote on page 163 that I think might guide us in this in this question. And it says, the authors bring up equity of adult learners later in the chapter. And, and here's what they say. It is far less risky for some people because of position, gender, or race to name what they don't know. Yep. And yeah, I just... Right. And so mm -hmm. I think it's it's so important to sort of not just say, oh, we're just going to do this public learning thing and everybody's the same and we're just going to, you know, just move forward again. That could be done in a compliance way. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, this does make me think about uh, you and I were uh, presenting at a recent conference. And there's something that you said that I as I was watching the audience, it was particularly impactful. And um, we were you know, you mentioned earlier that that we uh, one of the parts of our work is around um, encouraging our audience and our and our learners to consider using universal design for learning as an approach to um, really considering how we deliver professional learning and how we've how we want the professional learning to be designed for each of our adult learners and not for this mythical average adult learner and there's something you said in that presentation and you asked you asked the uh, the audience this you said, who are the marginalized adult learners in your workshops? Are they teachers of color? Are they new teachers? Are they teachers close to retirement? How can you make sure you know who they are and you are designing your workshops to the edges? Um, and I bring that up, um, that, that recent experience of ours, because this chapter is resonating with me because we need to push ourselves to ensure that we're providing all of our adult educators access to the space. So because once we're able to do that, I think we can do some of what this chapter is advocating for is we can set up an environment of public learning, but we need to first think about who's in the room and how we can make sure that the environment is really ready for them to do public learning. Yeah, I I still think about that a lot. I think about who who are marginalized learners, even the adult learners. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you're talking both about the safety of the space and the access to the space. And I think those are really important things to talk about. Um, so we talk about how do we begin? Um, you know, I think, I think one of the things that, that struck me as another space of um, potential, just like, I got to think through this a little bit and I got to think through being intentional. Cause I, I get this word intentional coming out over and over and over in the chapter yeah. mm -hmm. is that, what we're trying to do when we have these public learning opportunities is we're trying to help the folks who maybe are sitting on the outside of the fishbowl or the people watching to move away from noticing the content of the conversation to noticing, as the authors talk about, the way the colleagues are interacting or how the, what the architecture of the conversation is, right? And that's deeper work. And that's harder to do as a as an observer, because the immediate thing is to go into, well, I heard them say this and mm -hmm. they should have said this, right? Yeah, like they go right. into all these things as opposed to like, what just happened there? Did you see the learning happen and how did the interactions promote learning or not, right? Um, and, and how do we get better at that? So I'm thinking a lot about that too as another thing that I just yeah. feel like we have to be really intentional about as we set this up. And so maybe that doesn't get in the way, but it's something we got to maybe slow down and consider instead of just running in and saying, all right, everyone in a fishbowl, here we go. Let's do some public learning. Yeah, that, for sure. And 
And Audrey, I, I just want to throw one last point in here is and pull back for a second, because I think as I'm thinking about trying to make a case for this type of public learning, I I think I think I'd have a hard press. I'd be hard pressed to do that unless I thought about like why it's not going to work because we have the wrong end goal. Um, mm. So I, I just think a huge barrier to this work is, you know, and the authors pointed this out earlier in the book, and we talked about it in previous episodes that the the end goal has already been dictated to teachers around mathematics. And we, we already know what it is. It's around improved test scores. So, so teachers throw their efforts into that focus. Um, but it's not just standardized test scores, right? It's digital assessments that we might give throughout the year um, that judge our value as teachers and our students as learners. It's even timed math tests or, or timed drills. Um, so if that is all what we value and we say that that's the end goal, this environment with that end goal does not lend itself toward reflection and vulnerability about your practice. Because it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning, where it's this, it's it's not an ad adaptive thing. And so, but if we follow the author's advice and shift our end goal, what if it was the well-being of our mathematics learners? No time math test is going to support the end goal of the well-being of our mathematics learners. Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Mark. I think that there's a lot there. So, we're we're out of time. What's what's sticking with you? What's what's going forward? What are you still kind of going to ponder a little bit further? You know, I I think I think this 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 whole idea of of public learning is is just so so important to consider in the context of teaching and learning mathematics, I, I think some educators, I think it's so important for us to consider in the area of mathematics, have some degree of trauma around mathematics. That can influence their comfort level with us showing their vulnerabilities in their, in their practice to be made public. <clears throat> so we just need to keep that in mind um, before we sort of rush into something and think about like, how can we be... Um, uh, knowledgeable about that and sensitive to that and really think about how we make them feel comfortable as we shift into more of a public learning model. I love that, Mark, because that's it's triggering a lot of what I'm sticking with too around this design symmetry idea. And so if our end goal is focusing on the well-being of our students, what are the ways that we're designing learning for the well-being of our teachers? Um, and it sounds like some of those pieces around being thoughtful about the safe spaces and thinking about trauma is really matters when we're designing those for for our, for our folks. Yeah, for sure. Well, thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will start part four on transforming the culture. And we will chat about chapter eight, embrace vulnerability, moving through street data cycles. Until then, send us a tweet with the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes on transforming education. Mm -hmm.